This is Fashion in Focus, the weekly New Zealand fashion podcast covering our creative world from a unique perspective. My name is India Leishman. And I'm Murray Bevan. And every week, we'll connect you with the leading designers, editors, influencers, and stylists from all over the world. If you love fashion, this is the podcast for you. In 2005, Sir Anthony Hopkins starred in a biopic about Kiwi engineer and tinkerer Bert Munro in a Hollywood production called The World's Fastest Indian. Crafting away in his garage, Bert Munro customised a 1920 Indian Scout motorcycle that broke the world land speed record at the famed Bonneville Salt Flats in the USA. In 2005, another Kiwi artist was tinkering away in a different garage on something new too. Self-taught in pattern construction, sewing and finishing, the then young and bright-eyed Liam Bowden had a vision to create a product that harmoniously blurred lines between high fashion, form and function. The end result was what we now know as Deadly Ponies, the New Zealand-based, internationally renowned leather accessories brand that challenges traditional notions of design. It's a brand synonymous with artisanal quality that uses sumptuous materials and a unique design aesthetic that is forever pushing creative boundaries. In 2009, fate brought Liam together with Steve Boyd, once a press secretary in the Beehive. Steve had just moved from Wellington to Auckland and the pair hit it off famously and have been joined in life and business ever since. Deadly Ponies is now a true collaboration between Liam and his husband Steve. It's a pleasure to be joined in the studio today by both Liam Bowden and Steve Boyd of Deadly Ponies. Welcome to Fashion and Focus. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Was that, did that get the uh, laughs that you thought it might get? Yeah, I was trying not to <laughs> laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Bert Munro and Liam Bowden, both tinkering away in garages. <laughs> so Liam, those the early days, I haven't really mm-hmm. been able to get to the, the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of some real New Zealand stalwart brands, mm-hmm. I suppose, because um, there's so many new, new ones that seem to have only been going for two, three, four years. Uh, we're in 2020, 2005, you're turning 15 this year. Mm-hmm. So congratulations Thank to you, you. both. Um, kick us off with some recollections of those early days, what you were doing. Did you ever think, what am I doing? <laughs> Um, where did you want it to go and, and, and how did you start and why did you start? Um, it started pretty uh, organically, I guess. I was um, studying visual communication, so graphic design uh, at Unitech and um, had just done a screen printing elective and screen printed some things on leather and made things out of them and then um, sold a few of them and then that kind of slowly built on to selling a few more things. Um, Did that give you confidence or were you still trying to find your feed or cover expenses? um, I think all of the leather I managed to get for free because just down the road there was a leather tannery that was great. um, had a scrap bin. So they thought I was crazy. I'd go in there and take all their scraps and just (laughs) like sew them together to make this piece of leather big enough to make a bag out of. Amazing. Um, and then it was really just a hobby. So I kind of mm. was always into making things and just spending all my time being active and making and doing. Um, and so it was just another thing to kind of fill my time with. Yeah, rather more than, of a creative artistic expression and pastime than like, yeah, this has got to be a business. Yeah, got to just kind of fill my hands with something. Yeah. Um, and then, um, it was more when I was working with Superette doing the graphic design freelance, kind of while I was I was while I was I guess an amateur nerd. So I was like trying to get as much industry experience in graphic design as possible. So I was freelancing for a lot of companies and galleries, and um, they asked me what else I was doing, and I said these little things I'm making. So I brought them in, and they started selling them, and wow. then it became a company really from there. So Superette were your first stockist? Yep. Proper yep. stockist after yep. selling, hawking off a few bags yes, to yeah, friends yep, and family and things? Yeah. Fantastic. I was going to ask you next, who who supported you in those early days and, and what were those big breaks? I suppose Superette's won. What were some of those other things that kind of made you think this is actually going to be something here? 
I'm on to a winner. Um, I mean, definitely we were at Super Rep for a long time and they were definitely a major part of our kind of success in terms of they would just take anything we would give them and again, and it would sell very quickly. So that was fantastic. Um, Miss Crab as well with Christine. We were there for um, a long time and being able to again just make random things and just put them in there mm. and see if they'd sell um so i guess having that flexibility with our um, early kind of supporters and stockists to be able to just put anything in mm. and see how it would work and get customer feedback and, yeah that's pretty unique and all of that kind of stuff yeah um i suppose in a way that's also ironically that's how things maybe are trending back towards it's smaller batch runs of things more skews fewer products test batches here small runs of leather goods i know you guys do great one-off um things around cyber monday and black friday when you go sort of less is more yep um sounds like that's kind of where things started off and people could get a taste for what you're doing yeah i think the trouble was is that they would then see the bag not buy it come back it would be gone and it was a one-off so then it was like i want that i want it again so right then uh, <laughs> it was a one-off by accident yeah, so it yeah. was a problem yeah so then we um i mean i had no uh, background in fashion or design or so um then i realized that i had to kind of create a season and a range and sell it and a <laughs> yeah, that old chestnut. And all yeah, of that I got to make this into a business yeah, that looks so like a fashion brand. I didn't understand any of the terminology or <laughs> what a line That's sheet awesome. looked like. And yep. So it was very, um, yeah, by the wing of kind of my pants. Great. Really, but yeah. Well, for anyone listening to this, that's I love hearing these stories, especially in New Zealand, because so many of the best ideas come from. I picked up a sewing machine one day and I looked into a box of fabric and I made a pair of trousers or I went to the leather tannery down the road and put some scraps together and made a bag and that's where it began. You know, there's, mm. there is no right way, there's no one way of doing things and some of the most magical products and brands and ideas that have come out of this country or the whole fashion industry, I suppose, have started with that little whim and that idea that someone tinkering away on something special. Mm. So Steve... You didn't come out of the fashion industry either, so this was all news to you in 2009. <laughs> Tell me about your first perceptions of Deadly Ponies and and um, and what you thought of 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 everything and what Liam was doing. Well, I, I guess I mean Deadly Ponies for for me in, the, in those kind of in that early kind of year or two was a bit of a sideline to the relationship, you know. Yeah. And, and you know we were kind of I guess in our kind of early dating years and it was you know that was kind of the that was the challenge and the excitement of of being together and and, and in many ways Deadly Ponies was just kind of a part of that journey you know yep. I was still working on my own projects and 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 certainly had my own aspirations and my own career that I was kind of working on and um and I think it it really became a, a happy accident for me as well and in, in the sense that I found myself enjoying so many aspects of the fashion industry, um, despite not being a fashionista. Mm. Um, and um, I love that. Yeah. yeah, and and I think that the the challenge for me became more around you know how do I how do I help Liam build a, a business? You know how do I how do I help us as a partnership um, build a team around us that's going to support and, and grow the business? And that was kind of where I sort of grew my passion I guess for mm. the industry but you both also must mm. have seen around that time that this thing had legs it was growing it was popular there was demand obviously Liam you were selling out of bags you were asked to do more um, what was there a moment that you kind of or maybe a year or a couple of years where that that really sort of lit mm. up in both of your minds and you thought this is something that we both need to knuckle down on and and go for it yeah, I mean, there definitely was for me. Probably wasn't on the first um, date night. It was maybe a little later. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> um, it was. It, it was probably. Uh, I'd say, maybe eight, nine months um, into okay. us going out. Um, That's pretty quick, though. Yeah, we, we were. Um, I was packing boxes in Liam's parents' hallway. Right. Um, and I realised that we had 
so many boxes that they have this my well, used to have this beautiful um, villa on Mount Albert with one of those really long hallways mm-hmm. that ran from the garage at one end to, to a porch at the far end. And we had boxes running the entire length of the hallway. Right. And I, I walked and I looked down the hall and I thought, shit, there's a lot of product here. You know, yeah. This is incredible. How, how on earth have one of we made all this stuff in this yeah. garage, we being Liam really mm. at that point and, and, and Jane. Um, and 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 we've got to pack all these boxes and get all this product out. And and it sort of suddenly felt like there was some some initiative and impetus there to, mm. to kind of just turn it into something run with that this. was more structured than that. Mm. You know, I, I, I kind of looked at that and I thought, oh, we can do better than a hallway in, a, yeah. in, a, in, in, in Liam's parents' house, you know. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where it, where it stemmed from for yeah. me. Amazing. And Liam, your family have always been supportive. Obviously, the garage was probably... Was it their garage that you were tinkering yeah, away and yeah. out the back yeah, and their hallway that you were? And it never ended up. <laughs> that ain't happening, Dad. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was great. It was kind of a um, a perfect spot to just sit and um, yeah, work away on. Not have the overheads yeah. of a, an office or yeah. warehouse just yet. Yeah. Fantastic. And Steve, you mentioned early on about how when you were both thinking about the business, you also started to think about how can we build a team around us? And I know from both my work with you guys and just from your day-to-day uh, work as leaders and directors and, and creators in that business, that team and people are so important. And you mentioned Jane, and she was with you from probably close to day dot within the business. Um, talk to me about that process of bringing people on board and Liam, maybe also a little bit about how to share that creativity and and share the growing of this thing that was your little baby. How important have, has building that team been to the business? Um, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's been everything about the business really in terms of um, growing it and scaling it and um, putting trust in someone else to do something so you don't have to micromanage every single kind of part of it. Um, so that's definitely been the biggest learning probably over the last um, ten last ten years I'd say. Uh, and we're still kind of getting slicker and slicker with that. And now we're hiring people for roles that I don't even know what they really do or how they do it. But you know, supply chain and um, uh, production planning and sales management and all this kind of um, stuff but I think they all have kind of a passion for the product and kind of what we do and I think we've realised uh, how much it is about kind of telling them what our passion and our goal and the journey that we want to kind of go on and how they can kind of go there, there with us um, and I think the hardest thing Previously, we were very, um, I guess, uh, nervous about like, oh my gosh, this person might leave or oh my gosh, we've only got this person for two years. But I think now we've realized that um, it's a natural life cycle and someone coming into a business that they're not going to want to stay there forever. Mm. And, you know, they are going to want to leave. So what can they get out of, what can you both get kind of out of each other and mutually grow? Yeah. So that it's not a taboo subject to be like, you're going to go in two years. It's just like, it's how it it's is natural. And yeah, then I, you feel a lot more comfortable. And I spoke yeah. to someone a couple of years ago who said, and this was a business analyst, both with small and large companies. And they said, and bosses and directors and people running companies and hiring staff should be quite happy with about two years of staff output these days, especially for younger staff. That's it's natural for them to be dancing through a few roles they're going to be experimenting with things. If you can keep someone for two years, you're actually doing really, really well, you know. Mm-hmm. And I look at some, I mean, I remember Scotty's who had staff working there for maybe 15 years, 20 years potentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, it's close to unheard of these days that you'd have people that would be there for that long. Yep. And you're right, the natural way of things is to say, right, let's knuckle down, let's sink our teeth into this role and let's really enjoy it because we both know we're probably not going to be here forever, mm-hmm. you know. I also think that when you're transitioning through the years of a business, you know, people bring you different things at different points in that in that journey. You know, I think that it's, you know, if you have, you know, it's awesome to have the retention of staff for a really long time and that brings loyalty and all of that. But you have to balance that with 
knowing that somebody comes in with a certain set of skills to get you to the next stage, mm. and then you step through the next point, and mm. so on and so forth. And that that is exactly how our journey's been. You know, yeah. we've we've learnt so much from each person that's come in and and left, even from our own kind of leadership abilities and everything else. But you know, it's a it's all an evolution with people as much as yeah. our journey. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of brings us nicely into a, a larger conversation, I suppose, around people and partnerships. Is your amazing network of collaborations that you've grown along, especially the last, I'd say, maybe four to five years. I've noted some of them down here, and I wonder if we can talk about them a bit more. Um, some of the ones that I've touched on, and again, I won't know all of them, but you've you've had a really great collaboration history with Katie Lockhart, who has done some, if not all, of your interiors for your own retail stores. Yeah, that's um, the first one. Which <laughs> we did ourselves and painted the floor that bright blue. Yeah. Hey, bright blue floors, man. They're on treat. Yeah. Um, we were ahead of our time. <laughs> and also Katie started Everyday Needs in Ponsonby and you did an Everyday Needs garden bag, mm-hmm. which um, yep. which was a cute little collab for that store, which what I've loved about watching your collaborations is that the small ones, there's just as much effort and love there as the big ones. And the biggest one that I can see or can remember is your My Little Pony collaboration, which launched on the 2nd of August 2017. Um, you've also had an incredible connection, and both of you are big supporters of the arts. Um, your collaboration with the Auckland Art Fair in 2018, where you commissioned Hannah Valentine for a work, and you also uh, partnered with um, Deb Smith's Cloud Workshop, uh, as well as launching a larger silks collection. Um, and you did a collab with New Zealand artist Imogen Taylor, who hand-painted some of your wallpaper in the Britomart store um, around the same time in 2018. So those are some of the, the ones that I can remember. They're all pretty incredible. They all make me very envious. But how do you search out those collaborations and why have you collaborated? Because you could also be like a lot of designers and say, well, I've got the best ideas. I sit at the top of the tree. Um, I am the elite fashion designer, which has always been the historical way of doing things. But it feels like you're very open to collaborations. You're very open to learning. You're always sourcing from the, or sort of sourcing inspiration and looking at the arts and, and looking at sculpture and painting. Talk to me about about why, for a, for a start, that's happened and how it's enriched your business. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I think coming from a non-fashion background, maybe that's what's kind of ingrained it in at least myself is um, that idea of kind of learning and not really ever feeling like you know the best way to do things. So, yeah, I didn't know how to do pricing or I literally had no background whatsoever. So I think everything has been... um, kind of feel and touch as I go so same with um, I think collaborations it's just as we've kind of got on and we've got more sophisticated in some areas I've still got a desire to kind of learn whether or not that's in HR or um, supply chain or whatever it might be but just as much in um, kind of collaboration so working with kind of Hannah Valentine and and her creating a work for us um, it was that kind of idea of the intrigue of how she worked and how she created these bronze pieces and figuring out more her process and that was really interesting so I think for us it's more just um yeah if there's that idea of wanting to kind of learn something or grow or um if we can get better by working with someone that's better then Mm. I'm like bring it on does it feel are you proud to be able to hand over something that you've made a brand a moniker a design a world of ideas like deadly ponies and say to someone like hannah or katie do with this what you will (laughs) make it work you know make sure the retail space looks beautiful and we can you know sell a whole lot of product and display things but our world is your world we'll hand it over and does that make you proud to say well i've actually built that and now i can collaborate with someone who I look up to and we can um, work together? I mean, definitely. I, I Sometimes I'm, I mean, constantly I'm like, well, that could be better. That's not good enough for this. But I guess with Katie, like when she first came back to New Zealand, um, I um, loved her work and admired kind of everything that she had done. And 
originally had a meeting with her and was like, I can't afford that. <laughs> I can't afford her. Like, she's way out of my league. Um, yeah. And then well, maybe like five years later, um, mm. when we were actually opening retail stores and we were in a lot better position, was able to actually reconnect with her. And um, I think we originally connected on the Everyday Needs project and then through there, um, a pop-up shop and then through that kind of the kind of collaboration and work and friendship we've kind of mm. got with her now um, so that was amazing looking back to meeting her in my parents kitchen to now yeah you know her creating this kind of aesthetic that we're rolling out through our kind of retail network is an amazing totally an honor yeah yeah great and Steve how's how's your knowledge and love of the arts how has that influenced some of the collaborations and 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 why have you kept that as kind of something that has to be one of those veins that runs through the Deadly Ponies brand? Um, well, probably for a couple of reasons, really. One is that, I guess from a commercial perspective, you know, the, the business kind of it requires a certain amount of freedom for Liam to be creative. Um, and... You know, when you when you build a business, you have to do a certain level of commerciality to, to keep things kind of ticking along. And, um, you know, the way that Liam works is that he's always kind of looking for the new kind of thing to um, get inspired by. And so I think it's a function of that, that, you know, we've, we've built a business that enables Liam to work with people that he's really inspired by. And that's kind of always been a, a function of that. Um, for me personally, I mean, I come from a really artistic background. My my grandfather was an artist. My dad's an artist. My sister, um, um, the, she's got an art gallery in Geraldine in the old post office. Um, and, you know, I've always been surrounded and completely absorbed by um, the art world. Um, I guess further to that, I somehow surrounded myself with a group of actors as I was growing up through Wellington and um, and that is my entire friendship circle and I, I just have found myself in this uniquely creative environment um, with a brain that's probably far too serious and far too practical right <laughs> so I'm, I, I think I'm entertained by it but at the same time frustrated by it so it's sort of yeah I, I live in this uh, what this, an amazing this strange balance amazing <laughs> equation though to have this this bed and this world and this upbringing, which is so arts rich, mm. but has have a brain that is is quite mathematical, quite analytical, and looks for the one plus one equals two. But in the background, it's like, well, two could be anything, you know. It's um, yeah. I mean, it it is. It's a just a function of my upbringing, really. You know, mm. I mean, my my father, you know, through my whole life, you know, was always incredibly interested in my opinion, you know. Mm. <laughs> Poor guy. Um, <laughs> Jesus, do I have one? Um, but, you know, he he would always want to know what I thought of his work and he'd mm. be always working on a new idea and developing something and, mm. and I'd be in there as the first kind of brush at the canvas and and, wow. and, and I, I I learned a lot through that process and I guess I learned a lot about the negotiation of creativity, you know. Like right. Nobody can just be completely freely creative, you know. Mm. There's always a constraint. There's, mm. there's always something that holds you back and... And I think that that's been probably one of the gems of our collaboration, you know, between mm. Liam and I, is that we're, we're able to see that that kind of path and mm. see the light through through the business. Um, at times where some sometimes you go, wow, what if, <laughs> this is out, this is mm. out of this world? Is this mm. even is this even sellable? You know, so it's it's a, an yeah. interesting challenge. And I suppose you, you can see examples all over the place. And there's been I remember Alexandra Owen who started in Wellington. And she was so creative and had ideas that were way beyond the the uh, industry at that time, and especially the market wasn't ready for it. And she would not compromise, and that's something that I absolutely adored about her. But it also be began to be the one thing that added to the detriment of the business. And then she and James shut it down and moved overseas because they they didn't want the parameters. They wanted to be able to design anything they wanted at any expense. And we're not going to do a diffusion line or a range of T-shirts that you can buy into and ex explore the brand later on. It was, you know, those parameters just didn't exist. And it's quite an awesome concept, if Steve, if you look at it that way, is like 
all creativity really it actually needs boundaries to to succeed otherwise it could just fritter off into into nothingness sometimes i remember learning in architecture school there was a a business or a group of people in france who were employed by the government to to design buildings that couldn't be built they were made to to draw things and potentially make models of things that architecturally were impossible and that idea has always stuck with me because my brain just keeps making boxes, square houses with <laughs> doors yeah. at the front and flat roofs. And these people were making told tunnels or I, I don't know. I'm, like, I'm stuck <laughs> in realizing that you went to architecture school. Yeah, for three years. Oh my god! Well, you're in as much of a position as I am. Like, yeah, true. How yeah, did yeah. you end up there? Yeah, didn't come out. Of, certainly didn't come out of fashion. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's an awesome story. I mean there's the creative background, there's the the impetus there to be creative, but also the the personal desire to be analytical, and then the meeting of both of you for this business. Which, if you know the business, and sometimes if, I suppose if you analysed it from the outside, that's has led to such success. Um, and it's testament to both of your strengths that you've been able to compromise and collaborate and see each other's strengths for what they are and, and use them when you need them and, and also turn them up and turn them down. It's one of those great things about classic fashion partnerships that you see is that someone is creative, another one is business, and you kind of sometimes have to balance each other out and mm. hopefully not cancel each other out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we actually ended up at one point writing job descriptions for ourselves. I think we wrote one for mm. each other and then we yeah. rewrote our own and <laughs> that made life a little bit easier because, mm. yeah. you know, I mean, inevitably, you, you know, both of us can wear either hat at mm. times. So it's, um, you, you have to know where to draw the line. Yeah. So now the brand, at last count, you've got over 60 stockists around the world and four brick and mortar stores in New Zealand plus an extremely successful online store. How's the... How how have you felt that kind of expansion into the world with Deadly Ponies? And I know you've always been very selective around who shares your product and who sells your brand and which brands you sit next to. And that's gone for everything from media to, to supply chain and everything else. How do you feel that that growth is going with Deadly Ponies at the moment? And are you satisfied with where you're at? Or do you think there's a big hunger to, to push Deadly Ponies further still? Um, I think... Uh, I definitely think there's, I mean, there's a lot of projects that we've got on the go to kind of push it forward, um, as well as kind of further retail expansion. And, um, and then we've got, um, our kind of Northern Hemisphere line that we're also kind of working on and and pushing that. Um, I think since getting married last year, and I guess now it's a bit, trying to slow it down slightly and mm. maybe step back from the pedal and have a bit better worth work-life balance and kind of go we can let's just do one big project <laughs> a, a year Not seven rather than like in two weeks five yeah so yeah. last year was a big <laughs> a lot of big kind of projects a lot of them and the thing is i guess a lot of people don't see the the a lot of them are very business internally um, led kind of projects around kind of factories and um, that kind of stuff. So I think it's, yeah, we've got the hunger, but we're trying to do it in manageable um, kind of phases, especially being all kind of self-funded and self-growing financially. Mm. It's realising that um, the next jump um, in size and ambition that we have are big costs, so we need to... Mm. um, take them carefully yeah yeah so let's pick up on that liam you talked about your northern hemisphere line which is dlyp uh launched in late 2019 uh in a first collection that landed in selfridges and Shopbop and boutique one in dubai which is not bad for a first hit out yeah um let's talk about dlyp for some of our listeners based more in New Zealand, it may not be as familiar because Deadly Ponies is the lead brand in our market and DLYP has definitely been created more to hit a Northern Hemisphere market, um, if I'm right in saying that. Talk to me about about the reasons and the design and the ethos and the how that differs from Deadly Ponies and, and why you created it in the first place. Um, I think there was always that, um, I guess, just by being kind of 
entrepreneurial and ambitious. We were wanting to hit that kind of um, northern hemisphere market. Um, and by, um, I guess, the nature of uh, the Deadly Ponies as a business, we had grown it very much as a retail business. So we had a lot of offering of product. The range was really big, multiple colors and sizes and variations, um, which was very hard to sell seasonally to um, the Northern Hemisphere to different seasons. Um, And I guess they live a very different life where it's a lot more like occasional wear um, as opposed to, I guess, in kind of more Australasia where it's a lot more casual kind of looking for day bags so um, so we thought rather than try to um, reconfigure Deadly Ponies to kind of fit that um, because we had kind of such a long history of what we um, stood for and what we were about um, we thought we would actually create this kind of separate kind of entity um, called DIYP which is the four central letters of Deadly Ponies yeah so the idea is that it's not it's not really something different. It's not a a, a better range or a, or a um, lower diffusion range. It's just kind of a hub um, of ideas that we have within the company that we can't necessarily explore through Deadly Ponies. So we're exploring through this this other mm, thing. Right. Um, and why stretch Deadly Ponies further when you could actually say it fits quite beautifully in in this area or zone or yeah. moniker that it's kind of it, it it has grown into. Yeah. So we start another personality over to the side. Yeah. And sometimes we have a struggle communicating and talking about what we're doing in Daily Ponies every week and every mm. month. So to add that in um, confuses the whole thing and just yeah. makes it harder. And you must have stores and fans who have grown up with 15 years of Deadly Ponies and they expect a certain something from you, don't they? And they expect a certain look or a price point or a size or a colour maybe. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, they uh and I think we we always had those kind of pieces within our range, kind of very sculptural and structural, but they were the more show pieces. Mm. Whereas if we were being able to pull them out and present them to the northern hemisphere on their own makes them um something that can I guess stand alone in that market and then also get volume in that market. Um yeah that market being the Northern Hemisphere. So Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And Steve, how's DIYP tracking? Which season are you into? What's next for for that for that for that brand? Uh sold in Paris in January. I forget the, what the seasons are called for our June and August drops. And then we're just working on our November, February twenty twenty one drops now which we'll aim to finish in the next six weeks um and so yeah in terms of stockists we've uh i think it's been more of a a semi wait and see as to uh where it lands and what um regional territory picks it up the strongest Mm. um because as opposed to um it being like okay let's focus on france it's more about focusing on a kind of a demographic, which is kind of worldwide. Sure. Um, so, what do you think about this move for so many local brands to to base themselves in Paris once or twice a year? It seems to have been a trend that's been picked up by women's wear brands like Wynn Hamlin, Paris Georgia, Harris Tapper, Georgia Ellis, Maggie Marilyn. They've gone to Paris to create that as more of a sales hub at least twice a year. Why that as opposed to New York, London? Um, Milan, what's been the draw card there for, for, for you to use Paris as a as a spot to expand from? Uh, for us, I mean, further down the track, we might move to, based on, I guess, where we're going, we might move to, say, show at New York um, Fashion Week. Um, but for us, everyone goes to Paris, whereas with New York... Um, you know, it's very American-centric, um, some internationals, but a lot of American, um, where Paris kind of all the top, you can't not go to Paris because that's where a lot of the... Right, okay, so it's incredibly business-focused, that decision yeah. to be there where go with the flockers yeah. and have the most possible wins yeah, it's nothing on about it being a glamorous <laughs> European city. Like, yeah. uh, no, I we, know those sales trips. Yeah. We, we actually don't 
gone. You don't go. Yeah, yeah. product does. You know, we, we don't. We leave that with with the sales agent, and 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 often that's been one of the things that we've realised is that you know you you learn what you're good at and what you're not, and mm. neither Liam or I are particularly great salespeople. Um, and um, I, you know. It, it can be a draw card, but it's not necessarily a, a skill. So, um, yeah. so we we tend to leave that to people that are good at it. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about the future of Deadly Ponies materials, where you maybe think that's going, what your options are in New Zealand and abroad, um, and yeah, what's happening in twenty twenty and and beyond for Deadly Ponies and DLYP. Well, I mean, <laughs> um, a lot. I would oh, imagine. Yeah, I mean, this is an absolute. This is a, a massive component of of you know what has ultimately been, you know, a three year program for the business, um, and I guess further to that, you know, sustainability in its essence is is a is ultimately a catchphrase unless you can back it up, um, and you know I've been pretty passionate in the business about talking about transparency and not sustainability and and for me that's the new frontier and and the reason for that is is that ultimately we've been a sustainable business since day one you know we we you know clearly from what Liam was saying earlier in the interview you know he's you know he was pulling scraps out of bins um, to to make handbags in the, in the first instance from there you know we worked primarily with a supplier that was using uh, skins that were a byproduct of the meat industry you know, you know. Sadly, some of these industries have 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 gone by the wayside. You know, we've just seen um, the closure of New Zealand Light Leathers in September of last year, which is you know one of our biggest suppliers. Um, you know, we've had to evolve with the industry um, to supply the market with you know sustainable product that actually fits with the ethics of the business from from day one. And I think that that's been a really interesting transition. And I guess what's become more apparent is the ability for companies to be transparent and talk about those things across their entire supply chain is kind of the important step. And um, and to be honest, it's for us the most exciting step mm. because material innovation for us is as exciting as designing a new bag. Uh, we're looking at, at the moment, I mean, we, we use a, a, a gold standard sustainably sourced um, uh, cow or calf skin, which is embossed to create a python um, impression kind of material um, which creates a you know a whole other range for us of, of products that um, you know look and feel like a python skin and we actually found that product when we went up to Milan and, and it's just such a unique material um, you know that provided a whole different avenue for us outside of our deer skin range mm. um, and then further to that you know we've just um, finished development on a new vegan leather which is um, made primarily out of cactus and lamb can probably talk to to the detail around that that material a lot more than I can but you know the business has been so focused on on achieving these kind of goals and this part of this material revolution for for years that we've kind of forgotten to talk about it mm. and I think that that's the challenge for us and has been the challenge for us over the last kind of year or so is that we've realized that we haven't had an opportunity to talk about it mm. um, and so a lot of new brands that come into the market you know that's their that's the basis for their business um, yes. whereas ultimately for us it's been absolutely the core of the business mm. since day one. And I love hearing mm. you say that you're excited about it and that it drives you because this whole sustainability conversation has scared a lot of people because straight away the media and consumers especially, they just nail you to the wall. You know, like you you, you just, it's, not, it's like if you're not 100% fantastic and good, then you're evil, you know. And that, that reaction from people has been so detrimental to the, I suppose, the the future good of the industry because it's meant that people hide and they, they're they not transparent. So it's mm. great for you to say it excites us and not being reliant on New Zealand light leathers anymore for our source of product is a good thing. It didn't scare you. It excited you. It's like, we're great, where do we go next? You know, vegan leather, amazing. Um, other materials like this embossed calf that then it, it must drive you to, to be creative. You know, like how, when you see those materials, what's the feeling that you get where you think, oh, this is a new frontier for us? I think it's about, I guess, coming back to that idea of like learning. So it's, oh great, now I've got a new opportunity to learn about um, a vegan leather and how it's made and really like dive into being 
a total nerd and knowing everything about how this product is made, mm. which is the best company to get it from, what's the best way to manufacture it. Um, so it's exciting from that front and then the commercial front of how will we, you know, market it, pitch it, you know, get the consumer to fall in love with this product. Um, and what's been your initial, what, what have the, been some of the initial responses from some of these new leathers? Are you finding consumers are, are as excited as you and are loving them and learning about them as well? Oh, Is that, d- definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, you know, when you look at something like a vegan leather, I mean, that, that, that's a great example of a, of a material that our customers have been asking for probably for five years, to be mm. honest. Like mm. from, the, from early, early days, you know, there was always a customer that would email in, you know, once a month or so we'd hear from somebody that would be like, you know, why can't you just do this in a, in a vegan leather? And ultimately, you know, the answer to that is they weren't any better for the environment than mm. the product that we were using. And, and we weren't able to justify um, the impact that they had any more than uh, a byproduct from the meat industry. So um, where the industry has got to now um, is just worlds apart. Mm. You know, that product that we've um, worked to develop is, um, you know, it's entirely naturally made. So only u- it uses no additional water in the process, which is the biggest component of, mm. of, wow. of the manufacturing industry that's, you know, that, that kind of the, the issue of um, overuse of water. So, um, you know, that's one of the, I guess, the key factors in that kind of decision-making is that you can't, and you said it before, you, you can't force an industry to do something that it currently doesn't do. It has to evolve to get there. Mm. Um, and that's where, you know, we've been on that journey as well. And, and, um, and you know, it's like saying everybody has to drive electric cars tomorrow. Well, we all know that we're going to drive electric cars, but realistically, maybe that will happen in mm. its entirety by 2020, 2025, mm. 2030 maybe. Mm. Um, but not tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so you know, there's, there's, we have to go on this journey, and I think it's an awesome mm. challenge for the industry. And how have the 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 search for new materials, the search for new techniques, how has that changed or adapted your own production model? Has have you been able to create samples still back in New Zealand? Are you moving to a more offshore model? I know you've come from a mixed production model in the past. What's talking about transparency, Steve? Uh, and the future and efficiencies and business growth, what's the future there for Deadly Ponies? When, as we've seen the the steady decline in the raw material industry here in New Zealand, and you know, there's there's no doubt that that has been in decline for 15 years, um, if not before you even started, Liam. You know, the 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 basis for the manufacturing in New Zealand becomes increasingly difficult to justify in the business. And, and you know, we, we worked really hard to maintain that for as long as we could. Um, and, you know, certainly for us, we weren't happy with the decision to ship all of our manufacturing off to China. Um, that was something that didn't sit with either of us ethically. Um, we didn't feel that we could maintain the control over the quality, um, over the material. Um, for us, you know, we've spent a bit of time up in China, but you know, from a personal perspective, it's not somewhere that we like to travel to all that often. Um, and you know, there was a lot of factors that made what should have been the easy manufacturing decision a very, very hard one. Um, but ultimately, um, we are a growing business and we want to support and grow our staff here in New Zealand. Um, and to do that, we need to take more orders um, and we need to grow the business in Australia and further afield and just like we are doing. Um, so it's a simple equation. You've got to meet the demand somewhere. So we took the what I'd now say is the unenviable step <laughs> um, and the enormous challenge um, of building our own factory, um, wow. which we have um, been setting up over the last two years. Um, so we had that operational out of a temporary site in May of last year um, and we'll go up um, in May again this year. Um, we've been up quite a lot, but um, we'll go back in May this year uh, to formally open our, our new factory. So um, Fantastic. Congratulations. So, yeah. So it's a pretty enormous step for mm. us as a business. And and through that transition, you know, we've managed to maintain a lot of our production staff that were working here in New Zealand. We've moved them across into other roles within the business. Right. Uh, so we've maintained that institutional knowledge. You know, uh, you know one of our key 
um, staff from from our New Zealand production wing now runs all of our QC um, coming out of uh, Thailand. So the connection into the product is there. You know, the mm. understanding and the value that they place in the product is there. Mm. And um, further to that, you know, we own it. Um, yeah. So ultimately they work for our team and they're part of our team and they are passionate about making beautiful Deadly Ponies bags. Mm. And and it's it's a, it has been an incredibly tough road. Mm, um, but we are really seeing now as the product hits the floor, um, the reaction from customers. You know, it's mm. the elevation in the product is is second and to none. And the quality coming out of Thailand is exceptional. Well, I mean, the the staff that we we picked up there. So our initial team of uh, initial team there, which was a fifteen staff, are all Hermes trained. Wow. So um, you know they they they've trained with French masters, um, and that was through a, a former business that they were part of up in up in Thailand, and um, and so we took that team, and now we've built around them. So we've got thirty eight up there now. Wow. Um, and you know it's just a, it's a very very special bunch of people, and. and we're desperately learning Thai. Um, yeah. My Thai is terrible, <laughs> um, but luckily we love Thai food. So yeah, hey, so, good you know, start. It's, um, it's a it's a beautiful place to visit. It's up in mm. Chiang Mai, and um, and you know we amazing. We, we, you know it's a really become that, a very special experience. That must be a f- close to a first, if not a first, for for a New Zealand fashion brand. I mean, it's not often that know. you see. I mean, I, I often think that, every, you know, it, it's easy to um, think that you're doing something for the first time, but, you know, there's mm. you know there's so many incredible brands in New Zealand that have been there over the years and have probably tried everything we've tried, you know, so I never mm. like to think that we're doing something for the first time. You know? No, well, but, you also, um, both of you are very modest and you're not going to run around saying we were first, la-di-da, but I, I know from the scope I can see within the industry, brands past and present, old, young, you know, there's not a there's not a lot of people doing what you do full stop, you know, and that's really special. The fact that you're still around after 15 years, still growing, is exceptional. There's not many brands that are doing that with such passion and love as as well, and that's mm-hmm. just awesome, guys. That that's amazing for a New Zealand fashion business that is a real business. That's just fantastic. There's so many you don't you wouldn't want to admit it and pat yourselves on the back, but. I heard just the other day there was someone who moved from another company and a friend of hers was telling me about she just got this job at Deadly Ponies and her eyes just lit up like it was like she'd landed the ultimate job, you know. Hmm. So everything that you're doing is is just so well respected and so revered and it's it's just awesome. I mean, from this production to design materials, you know, Liam, your growth from a, you know, someone tinkering in a garage with scraps of leather to this. Yeah. What a story. What a story. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely, when we look back, it's definitely like, wow, we've, we really know how to put pressure on ourselves <laughs> and overload ourselves with yeah. tasks and jobs. But, well, you know, there's failures but, and there's wins and there's times that you've probably thought, what am I doing? You know, can I just mm-hmm. drop this all and walk away? Maybe I want to. Like, mm-hmm. the amount of people I talk to in our industry that say, God, I've – I've built this thing that's so big now, I kind of can't stop it, and it's this big juggernaut. But, mm. you know, that pressure's there. There's mental health. There's, like, personal well-being, and you guys are in a partnership running this huge business. Like, the stress is always there. Mm-hmm. But you you go for it. You know, you actually go back to the stress and go, let it push me further. Mm. That's something that must drive a lot of people here to say, actually, there's, there's a couple of guys who've built that to success, you know? I think that that's... You know where, you know, you touched on it there. You know the the reaction from people who come and work for us and want to be part of our business, the the joy that we get out of seeing them succeed is is ultimately what has it's, it gives us as much joy as someone coming and buying one of our bags. You know, mm. you know we've that's the thing that I look back on over the years and I say, well, you know, we've built. A sector of the industry that is supporting X number of people, um, you know, now around well, if we include Thailand in that equation, you know, it's it's up around 60, 70 people, you know. So, mm. you know, that's a that's a that's a pretty exciting equation when you think mm. about how much of an industry we've built. Mm. And I guess going back to where you started, you know, I came out of a 
political background and, and I know the importance of that on the economy sure. from a really simple mm. <laughs> um, outlook. Yeah, and you, I mean, you talk about supporting those people, but you're also inspiring a lot of other people. You know, like our industry can only keep going if you've got leaders at the front of the pack who are breaking new ground and doing fun great new things you know that's that's ultimately and you having people that travel to paris and take your product to the around the world you know like we're not doing this podcast to say here we are in little old new zealand and we're trying to make it on the world stage because that's disrespectful to all the people who are succeeding you guys and there's a bunch of other brands now that are totally playing with a plus brands around the world and holding your own um and that's you're an international brand you've you've got internationally renowned internationally accepted product uh, and that seems to be the new normal for, for New Zealand fashion brands and you guys are undoubtedly two of the people that have driven it to this point and you know it's just it's amazing and exciting to think about where it could go in, in the near future. That's, yeah. that's very, yeah. very kind, but, <laughs> but you're right. It is. It's well. It's hard slog, you know. Like that's the yeah. thing. Like it is. You know, everyone. And and you're right. There's so many other factors to that. You know, it's never. It's never an easy journey. But um, but I guess we have fun. Like we don't. We like we have a laugh. Like we don't get up in the morning and go shit. I got to go to work. Like we mm. get up and go to the gym and. And, and have a coffee and get on with our day and you yeah. know and we're catching up with the staff and finding out what crazy shit they've been up to you know like that it's it's a life like anyone else and and it just you know it just so happens we're lucky we get to do it in a bit of a partnership as well so mm. it's um it's a pretty fun it's actually mm. I mean it's been bloody fun it's been a hilarious 10 years <laughs> yeah well congratulations to both of you thanks again for your time today <laughs> pleasure um, that was amazing hearing your story. Congratulations, Liam, on starting this little gem of a business that has grown into such an awesome partnership with you and Steve. And I wish you guys all the very best for this year and and the future. Here's to great things. Thanks. Thanks, Mary. (laughs) That was the latest from Fashion and Focus. Thanks for tuning in and being a part of our conversation. If you want more, make sure you subscribe to get a fresh episode in your inbox every week. Check out more of our episodes on your favourite podcast feed and get in touch with us at fashionandfocus at showroom22.com.